Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and everybody in between, that is Eddie Vega. And that is Chibi Ordunia. And this is Words and Shit. Brought to you by The Blah Poetry Spot and Write Art Out. The show where you get to know the person behind the poetry. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, everyone in between, that is Eddie Vega. And that is Chiverdunia. Way over there, we got Rooster, and this is Words. And Shit, brought and to you by Shout Out and Blah Blah Poetry Spot. The show where you get to know the person behind the poetry. Y'all, it's been a crazy week, okay? Let's just start there. What did I say crazy as fuck? Crazy as fuck. Uh, so it's been a crazy week. We are uh, eagerly awaiting our guest to join us because, again, it's been a crazy week. So everyone, Wait, that's what eagerly awaiting our guest. <laughs> that's what I'm eagerly awaiting right now in this hour. Um, so everyone gets a pass this week. So uh, mental health check in because I'm eagerly awaiting Nevada, <laughs> North Carolina, Georgia, Pennsylvania. Look, I'm hosting. I'm hosting this show, but I'm even Alaska. Welcome, welcome to the Right Art Out uh, election special. There that's you really, go. That's right. really what this is while we wait for it. Uh, wait a second. He just joined us. We are good to go. Rooster, we appreciate you being here. Adios, muchachos. Adios. <laughs> All right, Eddie. So, re real talk, mental health check in. How are you doing? You know, I'm I'm coping. Um, I'm I'm doing okay. And I, the fact that there was no civil unrest in my general area, I think, really helped out. You know, because I was prepared for that for Wednesday, uh, kind of, uh, <laughs> not really, but you know, I kept hearing, so I started getting scared. And the fact that it didn't happen, more or less, I feel pretty good about that. I feel pretty good about that. You know, mm -hmm. didn't have to cover on the way anywhere. How about you, Chibi? I mean, I've been wearing this same panda onesie since Tuesday, and it is my safety zone right now. <laughs> I feel good in it. Um, there's been some startling discoveries about the way some people voted that have unsettled me it, a little bit. It's unsettling, but I am this. This is my respite. I am so excited that we are in this moment now together. Um, wow. And I can't wait for tonight's conversation and tonight's show. Um, forewarned, I do have CNN in the background. Should any updates happen in the course of the show, we are going to pause and update the world because we want everyone to be informed as it's happening. But at this point, let's just move on with our lives as best as we can. Eddie, talk to us about our guest tonight oh jimmy today we've got probably what is who is one of the most educated guests we've ever had we have dr adam faulkner a poet educator and arts and culture strategist he's the author of the willies from button poetry and adoption which is the winner of the 2017 diode editions chapbook award and his work has appeared in a range of print and media spaces including on programming for hbo nbc npr the new york times and a bunch of other places He's a former high school English teacher in New York City's public schools, the founder and executive director of the pioneering diversity consult consulting initiative called the Dialogue Arts Project, in which capacity he develops and facilitates trainings for schools, companies, and cultural institutions across the country. He's toured the U.S. as a guest artist, a lecturer, and a trainer for thousands of students, educators, and corporate employees, and was a featured performer at President Obama's grassroots 
Chiefs Ball at the 2009 presidential inauguration. What? Mm-hmm. He holds PhD in English and education from Columbia University. Dr. Adam Faulkner, y'all. Adam, so good to hey. have you on here. <laughs> What's up? Hello, greetings, salutations. Yeah. Where are you joining us from? I'm joining you from New York City. Ooh, all right, all right. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you for being here with us. Real quick, mental health check-in. How How is this week treating you? How are you holding up? Oh, man, I appreciate the check-in, as always. Uh, I'm doing fine, uh, considering the chaos and considering the stakes. I am uh, pretty pretty happy and pretty healthy and um, trying to keep my eyes on the long game and checking in on people that I know need to hear from me as okay. much as I possibly can. Um, and I'm taking care of myself. So that's step one. <laughs> Good. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to be here with us uh, today. I think we all need a, 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 a just a break from everything that's happening and, and you know, uh, just enjoy some amazing art and uh, hear some, some poetry and just, and just, you know, let's, let's talk. So that being said, uh, let's get into this. Adam, the floor is yours. All right. Appreciate you both very much. I hope everybody's doing all right. From my mostly quarantined nest to wherever it is that you find yourself tonight, it's a um, it's a pretty crazy and strange time to be alive and be here. And uh, I'm just going to jump right into it. Um, Yeah, here we go. Let's get a, let's get a one thing a halfway straight. Let's get one thing, one thing halfway straight. I said, let's get a one thing, a one thing a halfway straight. Let's get a one thing, one thing halfway straight. I have spent my entire life trying on costumes because nobody told me I couldn't and the stakes were never that high which I have come to think is mostly what makes a white writer a white writer. The last time anyone referred to me by that name was exactly never, but that is also the point. I am a queer poet. I am a child of an addict. I'm a masquerading white boy. My best friend died and it was sad, and these are the stories I water into bloom. Camp counselor, test cheat, choir boy, cypher rapper, scratch golfer, honor roll, pothead, point guard. And Whitman says, very well, you contain multitudes. But Whitman was a white writer, too. And the not-so-funny thing about spending a life proving you aren't something is that any story that isn't the story is more like survival or more like a brick for laying until the wall is high enough that you are safe inside and you wake up and you say, whoops, whose house is this? Who did I hurt to get here? And is it too late to call for help? So this collection um, that I'm gonna be reading from tonight and I'm gonna kind of be bobbing and weaving in and around a little bit uh, is, uh, is called The Willies. And um, it's really telling two stories side by side. And that, that piece, that ditty, I call them ditties because many of them are not quite poems. They're not quite songs. They're somewhere in between. Um, 
it's really telling two stories. The first is uh, the story of my own sort of like coming out into queerhood. So they're, they're poems of masculinity, they're poems of um, queerness. Right? And then the other sort of twin parallel is the story of my father's descent into and recovery from substance abuse addiction. And it's really about the costumes that both he and I are sort of like trying on and hiding within on our respective journeys, right? So it's about how we hide from ourselves um, to, to try and save ourselves when, of course, the only way to do that is, is to tell the truth. Um, so I'm going to read uh, just a bunch of poems from the book, some of which are from sort of my side of the narrative. Others are from uh, my father's. And, um, and then I'll close with a couple, a couple brand new shorties from a, a new collection that I'm working on. All right. Owning your own white guilt is not cool yet. So you stuff the soft parts of other kids' cultures into your pockets until you believe that it is not there at all. You are a matching sweatsuit jukebox stock with everything from Ice Cube to Outkast. Entire albums memorized and coiled in the damp of your throat. They are gunfire into the air above the school parking lot. And that, that is as black as you think possible. And pulling blunts the size of magic markers into your small lungs before school is black. Your dance routines are black. They call you Justin Timberlake. Your crossover is the blackest, though you are the only white boy on the court anyway. They call you Steve Kerr. You used to stare at a freckle on your left arm and imagine your entire body that color. How much easier it might be to be you if that were the case. And until someone tells you otherwise, that is black too. And it isn't that you don't know you're white, right? I mean, less white is all you'd like to be. You're sure there are good parts about having white skin too, even if you cannot see them yet. Because no one asks you where you came from or how you got here, which is good because you probably could not answer anyhow. You just appear with an insatiable hunger to touch things that do not belong to you. And a culture that fits like a bedsheet. No one tells you that you can't place your favorite things about black people on and try them on to parade around on the front lawn to feel better about something until it is time to come inside for dinner. So you do just that, right? You dip your toe in and then out and you run when you must. But boy, you stay when you choose. And that part, that part is the widest thing of all. It's tricky, so stay with me. I crushed on the girls who dated the boys I crushed on, which I understand seems inefficient, but really it did the job. I loved Jeff, or at least from behind my desk in third period, I liked imagining my palms slapped around the buzzed cowlick on his neck. And Jeff asked Tasha to a dance, which I knew to mean that Tasha and I should hook up. It is not that complicated if you think about it. I loved Evan. Or 
at least the way pool water clung to his trunks and his thigh hairs when he climbed out of the chlorine. And he got head from Michelle Cantor that summer behind the equipment shed. So I gave her my virginity. We thrashed around in the dead darkness of a linen closet. Our bones clacked against the wood floor until there was nothing else to say. This is the modern, you know, this is like this new Zoom room reading we're, we're, we're living in now. It's so weird. Pussy don't bite. I, I, I swear I've like read this poem many, many times and uh, I keep expecting that first line to feel better. It does not. Pussy don't bite is what they kept taunting and laughing on the other side of the door. And Jessie is older and she is in the good choir and sometimes jokes with my friends that she wants to be the one who fucks me first, which I think is weird, but also flattering because she is the lead in the musical and I only have a small part. So when she grabs my hand and walks me across the cast party to the bathroom, I am sort of prepared for the worst or the best or maybe a hand job or an easy exit like, wait, I'm too stoned or wait, this will ruin our friendship, but I just didn't factor in the boys and that I would have to do it listening to them, listening to me on the other side of a thin strip of light and that passing through them lined up like a corridor outside would be the only way I would ever get to leave. I'm into fishing and he is into me, which honestly is kind of a win-win. I bait our lines and unhook the catch and all the other fishy stuff and he makes picnic baskets with beers and snacks and floppy sun hats and maybe even a cigar or two because they are great for the mosquitoes. Sometimes we are the only two people on the water and even our whispers carry across the entire lake and it is always so romantic and adventurous except one time we decide to go for it right then and there in the center of the lake and it is really hot until it is not and everything just starts smelling like fish and everything is rocking back and forth and neither of us can get a sturdy grip and we aren't going to finish no matter what we do. So I start laughing and he gets furious and screams at me and throws our entire picnic in the lake and I try explaining that it was just a wild scene and I can't unsmell the fish guts and we should just go fuck in the grass but he can't get it out of his beautiful head that it was his fault, his fault, couldn't get the job done, I didn't want him, he wasn't good enough so he jumps in the black glass and swims back to the beach alone. My father is a mansion made entirely of myths. Each vaulted ceiling more elaborate than the last. My father is a trophy in a flock of empty frames. He is a fork in the most violent of rivers. He is a detective. He is a therapist, sax player, nobody, a water walker, weaver whose mouth spills stories like moths. He is legend. He is both arms flown into the sky of a bomb blast, storm of a thousand swallowed keys. He is a candle in a cave without an entrance. His whiskey glass sloshes into his lap at red lights. He is the empty groove in a mattress 
racket of hardback dickens through drywall. He helps people fish inside themselves for the right lie. He is other women's names and locked cabinets. He is one eye cast over his shoulder for shrapnel. He is vomit on the bedroom carpet. He is vomit in the living room. He is a scholar of bomb blasts and both arms around me. He is made of myths and keys and red lights and snip strings and snot in a rehab waiting room. He is a hard back water walker. He is a fishing tail, an elaborate entrance. So these poems are kind of, um, you know, bobbing and weaving a little bit uh, in and around these sort of like twin parallel narratives. Um, a lot of the work I do, uh, as, as was sort of mentioned, at least casually in the bio, was around um, using creativity and using the arts as ways to help folks tell the stories that they're scared to tell about the bodies we inherit and, um, and why that work or why those identities perhaps or stories matter in the context of how we choose to live and where we work and how we choose to raise families. But I, I mean that to say that I think of... Uh, I think of creativity and art and play uh, as ways to be more courageous actors in our own lives. Um, and my work for the last 10 years has really treated creative writing and poetry, and not just because this is true in my own life, but because I think that there's, I know that there's like real hard research science behind it, that uh, creativity and play can be spaces where we live more vulnerably than we give ourselves permission to in our lived daily lives. Um, and some of the poems in this book, as well as a lot of the new work that I'm writing, some of this young adult voice or collection you're hearing, that's almost sort of like diary entries, um, is really treating, treating writing in that way as a, as a space to be a little more courageous than, than, uh, than we are in our day-to-day -day lives, which the world could use more of. Um, I'm going to read the poem that is sort of like the title track for this book, The Willies, really trying to sort of set the table for these, these two twin narratives. Um, it's an old poem, but it is uh, one that, that for sure felt um, like the right way to, to set up these two sort of parallel stories in this book. So this poem is called Willie Boy. Finally, the poem I will not write. I am in fifth grade wrestling in a brush pile of dead leaves with a now dead friend. We paw the hardening knots in each other's gym shorts and laugh and writhe until the leaf pile is no longer a pile, but a kicked in hive of tiny heaving sweat. Soft stink of new lungs and rotting wood. Six girlfriends and a dissertation later, I wake up in a tougher city with new friends, all of whom remind me of my father. I look at men with chiseled jaws on loud trains in new ways, or maybe old ways, but with less at stake. I wonder if they ever hover their gaze over me for an instant too long, too. I wonder if the flexed tricep peeking from under my own black t-shirt makes them dance their eyes into pretend reading material, too. 
I freeze snapshots of beautiful strangers, pin them in the high-ceilinged hallways inside me near the faces of everyone who knows me by a different town or a different version of my father, none of which are the Christmas. He got so loaded he started yelling about how gay people give him the willies. Rooted in Willy Boy. Or Sissy. A name I've tried fighting and drinking and fucking away since sixth grade. A badge I've tried burying amidst the brass edges of ball fields and rap songs and still from beneath the goose down of this new bearded man. Soft snore into my shoulder's right teacup. Hairy thigh laid heavy across my lap. I peck the first lines of another poem I will not finish. A willy. A sissy. It raises its hand. It draws a blank. It swells its chest. It coughs soot. It curls its fists. Slinks into the dark. Applause, applause, applause. The crowd goes wild. Wow, wow. That, that last one. Uh, I hate to say it gave me the willies, but uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's like a certain uh, a feeling of I mean the the way that was woven. I mean, I, I did not expect it to go. I didn't I didn't realize that was yeah, a yeah, title yeah. piece. You know, I guess and um, mm. yeah, that's all good. Thank you. We, we just got a comment, Ryan, saying, "Well, I know what I'm buying Ryan. later," <laughs> uh, which is. Which is funny because when I finished reading your book, I reached out to Ryan and I was like, have you read Adam's new book? Because I think you would love it. And uh, clearly it was right on the nose. Um, let's dive into this book. I have a question. You know, uh, I, I wanted to know more um, because as I read through the book, there was definitely a feeling of, of searching, a feeling of, of loss, a feeling of uh, struggling with acceptance. Like how did this book kind of come about in the, the compilation yeah, of these, um, these poems together? Well, I think, you know, I'm, I'm always, um, I think one of the things that really, really preoccupies my writing perhaps more than anything else is like the desire to want to understand what I am inheriting. Um, and in, in the, in the, you know, the degree to which it makes sense, interrupt or problematize or trouble what I am inheriting, right? And mm -hmm. two of the larger narratives that have really like occupied a lot of my life, um, both I think as a young boy and then as a young man, uh, and as a result, they are the sort of center pins of this book are, are, are narratives around race and um, masculinity. And um, both of those things are deeply entangled with this sort of um, question about what my father represented to me as a young person and, mm -hmm. uh, and trying to run from multiple parts of myself that I was just like really, really, terrified to see myself as. Um, and I think in many ways, right, like that mirrors a lot of, you know, his, his journey as well um, with, with uh, substance abuse. But I think in answer to your question, um, I had spent a lot of time writing about race 
um, and whiteness and thinking a lot about that work like academically and thinking about white kids and cultural appropriation. And all the while um, was really sort of tiptoeing around a lot of questions in my own life pertaining to sexuality and queerness, which for a very long time I you know, knew was true, uh, but, it, but it wasn't really until um, I was forced to, to reckon with my own father's addiction that I made the choice to sort of confront what other stories in my own life I was running from, right? So my capacity to sort of like come out and be free and step into queerhood as a 20 as a something year old man uh, was deeply tethered to watching my dad um, in some ways not make that choice, right? And, and really sort of descend into his own addiction. But ultimately to keep it, to keep it real funky and honest, like watching him come out of the other side of, uh, you know, his, his own struggle, I think is, is an important part of that narrative that sometimes gets like lost in the book, right? Mm -hmm. Watching an unexamined life challenged me to sort of think more critically about, you know, what I, the truth I need to tell in the world, but it doesn't stop there, right? Like watching him examine who he was and emerge on the other side as like, to some degree, a healthier and happier person having made the choices that he did um, really kind of in some ways gave me the, the courage to do the same thing, but in a different way. You know, the, there's something universal about relationships between fathers and sons. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, I guess across cultures, um, across norms and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but it's a little bit different when the son is a poet. Mm. And uh, it's, I guess my question is, um, has he read your book? <laughs> and then, and then, um, do you read them together? Does he watch the performances, or is it more like I'm gonna let you do that on your own, then you talk to me about it later? For sure, definitely the latter of that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think uh, you know, it would be dishonest to say that it's like not hard for me, right? Some people are like, I write what I write, and other people can just deal with it. That's not me. Um, I. I do think I'll say that it's important for me to tell the stories I think I need to tell, right? Like if I know I need to tell them, I can't get caught up in my head thinking about like, oh, will this offend people or oh, will this hurt people, right? If I'm writing, like that's it. I worry about like what to do with said thing once it's once it feels good coming out of my body. Um, but I, I do feel accountable to what I write and I feel accountable to the people who are implicated in what I write, particularly when I am writing a version of my own life that's real and I'm transparent about saying that this is real. Um, that being said, uh, you know, I, I think my dad's relationship with my work um, has changed over time. I think that initially it was a sort of like an act of like betrayal um, or, you know, as, as poets are wont to do, remember a uh, fictionalized version of how he remembers the very same day. Mm. Um, but, but what I have sort of like come to accept both in my own life and I think both as like the person who is telling the stories I choose to tell, but also the person who is continually trying to write 
myself into better relationships with people I love, him being one of them. Um, you know, we, we, we got to tell the stories the way that we experience them and the way that we remember them. And yeah. uh, one of the hard things about, you know, one of the hard things about, uh, I guess I, I was going to go back to your original question. I think it's hard for any parent to have any artist who chooses to use their life as like material. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, but I also know that um, when I am telling the stories that I tell, right, like even sometimes when there are different rememberings or we remember things differently, and this is true for me as a teacher too, right? It's like how you remember it is how that shit happened. How mm -hmm. you, and and I, 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 I don't deal in like, did it happen or did it happen? Like what, I mean, I think that we're, we're all drawing from like a, a, a well and a blurry set of how we remember experiencing our lives, right? And, um, and I think it's important to teach young writers to like not treat the truth, capital T truth, as a thing that stops them from saying the things that they feel they need to say and aren't quite sure how, right? Say it and then like look at what you've said and then decide once you've said that thing, how well it lines up with other people's versions of that story. And if you need to change some tenses or pronouns or names, cool, great, then it's fiction, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I, I believe really strongly in, uh, in letting people treat their own lives as they remember them and experience them like as academic subject matter worthy of praising and celebrating um, and, and, and I choose to treat young people in, in that way as well. I think it's like you say um, all of it's true and some of it actually happened. <laughs> yeah, that really, uh, before I get into my question, that really segues really well into this question the rooster had, which was, do you ever bend the reality of a story or situation to fit a poem or is it a strict retelling and find the poetry within the narrative? It's both. It's definitely both. All right. It's, it's definitely both. Um, when I do the former, right? If I'm like, well, this isn't how it happened. Like, so fucking what? Right? Like, <laughs> if I'm in the business of recreating or building or shaping something that a reader is going to live in and dwell in, like, I could be telling a truth that is bigger than the truth in this poem. Mm. And if what I need to do in order to capture or convey the truth inside this poem, that then it's okay to like depart from the story, right? I, I don't, I don't get tremendously anymore, right? I don't get tremendously like caught up in did it or did it not happen, um, because and, and partly because I think there are different ways to talk about experience, um, and sometimes there are ways to acknowledge that in the writing that like what I am not is a reliable narrator. You don't have to trust me. You don't have to treat me as like the fact bearer for this story, right? Um, you too are building a relationship with me, the writer, and your suspicion of how I'm able to or not able to tell the truth as everyone else in this story, that's like, you know, that's J.D. Salinger's Holden Caulfield, right? You like hate this mm -hmm. story. I don't know if any of this shit is happening or not. Um, but, I, but I think the same thing is true of poets and poets 
often have more creative agility in the types of tools we use to sort of bob and weave in and out of reality versus fiction. Yeah. And I think that's one of the, the things that people I wish like would remember about poetry more often is that poetry is nonfiction-ish. You know, it's nonfiction adjacent. Like there's, it's still li uh, literary works that authors can take, you know, uh, privileges with to create the work. It, it isn't necessarily autobiographical. Um, now I want to dive into the weeds a little bit because like we, we, I was talking about your book and your work earlier again with Rooster and he mentioned like just how clean your work is. And I couldn't think of a better word for it uh and one of my favorite adjectives <laughs> well it's 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 in your work and you know lena c as she as you were reading your work said i like how transparent this is and and your book is very transparent and it's very introspective and you do this incredible thing in some of your poems where you put it's almost like you're dictating to the reader what is happening to them Right. Mm -hmm. So like, for example, like in flight two, three, three, one, it starts eight days since he fell 24 stories head first on the pavement in the middle of 37th street. You are two martinis into the flight 300 miles above sea level. Right. You are two martinis into the flight. So you put the reader in the author's perspective, but it also gives the semblance of the author having like an out of body experience. Mm -hmm. Where, where, where did that decision come from? Like where I'm just blown away by it. Yeah. First of all, thank you for bringing that book. Like out of all like book talks and whatever related to this book, no one, people rarely want anything to do with that poem. It's just sort of like sticking out. It's like dangling, right? A lot of the Connor poems are, um, are, are I think unless it's a real careful and um, studious read and a tender read, the Connor poems can just kind of like fall into, I don't know, some third space that doesn't really connect to these other two narratives, but I really appreciate you bringing that one up. Um, I, uh, I love the second person. It's a good question maybe to ask on the heels of the previous question, right? Which is like, to employ the second person, um, I, I just know the first time I saw that done, it blew my fucking mind, right? Like I, I didn't know, I didn't know how, but I knew that I was being walked into someone else's experience. And I felt, I felt both, um, I felt like my hand was being held and I was being like walked into someone else's story, but I was also being asked to like consider if this was my story, mm. right? I was also being asked to like put both of my feet squarely in this poem, it almost feels like instructional, like you are doing this, right? And I love the way that it sort of blurred, uh, I call this like um, like an aesthetic versus an afferent reading. Afferent is like, you read, for, you read to do a job, you read this to get the meaning and to complete a task. Aesthetic is like, it sort of blurs the space between who, who is coming to this poem, right? Who like, it allows me to bring a lot of me to the pieces. And I liked what the use of the second person did. First time I saw it used really well, which was, this is much more reflective of like the time at which I came into the game and started reading books with some semblance of criticality uh, was Jean Anverley's work, who is the editor of this, one of the very 
brilliant editing team members of this book. Um, she is my forever editor and one of the cleanest poets in terms of just like how she shows up on the page that I've ever known. Um, but Jean Ann's work really made a use of the second person that I had never seen before. And uh, it was like, I, I always joke with her when I'm like, I wrote another Jean Ann poem. I'll like send her <laughs> second person. Um, but I think that was a choice for, for a number of reasons in that particular poem. One, I, I, there's, there's a universality to losing someone, um, you know, uh, someone prematurely and someone tragically that I think everyone has the capacity to understand at the very least, if it hasn't happened to them directly. So I think that second person really like asks a person reading that poem to think about that person or to bring who in their lives may have occupied a similar space. Um, and then, uh, and then the other piece was just that I, I had a real hard time writing about a lot of the Connor poems at the time I wrote them. And I felt like I was writing really cathartically through his death and, uh, taking the personal first person out of some of those poems made the writing in some ways possible in a ways that at the time I was writing them, I just really struggled to do. Mm. And then when it felt like they kind of, when it came time to put those poems together in this book, um, they took on new meanings and the you felt like it was interesting to kind of keep in there. But um, yeah. you know, uh, Ryan from Houston has a question. So thank you for writing about your late bloomer narrative. I'm a late bloomer too regarding the entrance into queerhood. Since you verbalized how you ran away from a, a lot, what variables allowed you to feel more comfortable with yourself and to rest your legs? Mm, oh, I like that. Rest your legs. Okay, poet. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, I like that a lot. What variables allowed me to rest my legs? Um, well, I mean, I'm really, 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 really lucky in some ways. I mean, in many ways, I'm really lucky to be surrounded by a, a, a rich community of like artists and friends in New York in particular that uh, that that love me, that um, are checking on me constantly. Um, and I think that is not a variable to take lightly, both in terms of how we choose to write and tell our truth, but also how we choose to live. You know, I take very seriously the beloved community and all that encompasses, meaning like there are people who are not related to me, who are more family than those who are. Um, and that's capital F family, you know, and, and it's less like a chosen family. And that's just, that's it. Those are my people. Those are my people. Those are kindred. I will know them when I'm 80. You know what I mean? Um, praying that I, praying that I see 80. Or maybe not. <laughs> Right. Maybe, maybe give me a give me, maybe give me a clean sixty. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think uh, so. Family, community, people in New York that I kind of came up writing with and learning that like creativity was a space for me to feel powerful and be courageous and be vulnerable and like through the telling of stories that mattered to me, forged relationships. You know that that I will I will never let go of. Um, other spaces, I mean, I, I also just think, uh, 
like I said, watching, you know, serendipitously watching uh, my own, my own father's like uninterrogated life um, really reached a critical point um, where he needed to ask himself some hard ass questions or he was going to die. Um, and in some ways that metaphor, that question really, I took it seriously in my own life, right? I, I didn't want to be asking myself questions when I was like, 50, right, uh, that I needed answering, right? And I, I, I just really had a hard, it's been a long conversation with myself. And I don't think I really gave, I wasn't out to myself until I was like 23, maybe, 22, 23. Um, and then I think it wasn't really until my like mid 20s, 25, where I was just like, well, if this is, <laughs> this is a funny story uh and he won't mind me sharing this but this is also this is also kindred to like uh having people that love you people that are checking on you in your life um my my dear friend carlos andres gomez who has a brand new book out called fractures and it's incredible buy it uh one time very jokingly i'm sure we were like out drinking i don't exactly remember where we were but he we were just like joking ha 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 we were talking about like boyhood. We talk a lot about masculinity. His a lot of his work deconstructs masculinity, um, and he was like, "Look, if you ever, if the thought of sucking a dick has ever occurred to you, like it even popped into your brain. Sorry, I don't know if this is we're okay to. We're it's called words and shit. We're okay. <laughs> I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say, uh, if, if the idea of sucking a dick ever like popped into your brain, right? Even if you were just like, I, I wonder what it's like." He was like, then there is absolutely, I mean, you have, you have to suck a dick. <laughs> <laughs> you absolutely have to suck a dick. Um, and I was like, ha, 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 yeah. <laughs> and, and we have this moment, I've gone back to him so many times, but like, that's a, that's a testament to like friends, like seeing you before you see yourself or saying things that like, they know you need permission to say or mm. to embrace or feel. And really that's a, that's just a, an exercise in trying to take who we surround ourselves with as deadly serious life work. If you are not like inspired by and challenged by and humbled by the people that you speak to and talk to and love up on every day, get new people, you know, the thing <laughs> The things that have allowed me, or, or like trim the fat, trim the fat and stop dispersing your energy and focus on the like real small devoted family that you know is your people. Because I think it's really easy, particularly with the role that like social plays in our life and social media, right? To just feel like friends are friends are friends are friends. And there's currency attached to that. And uh, I just, I really value and can't speak enough about how much I have been like held up and how fortunate I am to have had spaces where I could become in the company of other people. Like I, I didn't need to be a you know, polished product um, at any point of my life, even though that's something I spend every day wrestling with. Um, mm. So I don't know if that answers your question, Ryan, but it's really- <laughs> but do, I think- you, do you think that, that last point about the trimming the fat, mm. do- Think COVID has uh, made that a little easier? Oh yeah, <laughs> totally, totally. It's I mean, and honestly, like 
this is gonna sound fucked up, but it's for the better for me, right? Like I think the thing, the thing that this climate has done has just like it's 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 forced me to really embrace who it is that I am moved by and motivated by that I'm scared of losing a step with, right? And those are the people who in this ocean of like bullshit where we're liking and following and retweeting and constantly filling up our like social cachet to feel better about ourselves. Those are often the people we end up treating the worst or those are the people that we like neglect, right? The people that we are closest to are often the ones that like, they'll always be there. You know, I don't really have to worry about them. And this is true of family too. I don't call like my mom for a week or something like that. And I was like, unacceptable, you know? Uh, but I, I think that it has forced me to really come to grips with that, how important, you know, less people are and, uh, and just how to, how to be more strategic and thoughtful and intentional, intentional, intentional about telling people that I love them and, and creating time and space to, to build with them and their families. Yeah, absolutely. I think these, these quarantine times has really forced us to decide like, who's in my bubble? Right. Totally. Who, who, who am I willing to risk my life for? <laughs> right. Totally. Uh, totally wrong. Like I cannot wait to like go out and dance for like 34 hours straight <laughs> and to talk to strangers and just run amok all through the city. But like, mm. that, it's really, it's powerful to have that perspective, to know that like, that is like a, that is an insatiable well that like is not worth investing time and energy toward filling that, um, you know, this moment has really given me the opportunity to just like focus on who it is that's holding me up. Yeah. While I'm, while I'm out here. So. so on the subject of intentionality, I want to jump back into the into into the weeds about poetry because sure. you're a doctor. <laughs> so I'm gonna pick your brain. Well, <laughs> um so in terms of form. So there's some things that I was noticing in some of your poems that were really interesting in how it's laid out on the page, you know, mm -hmm. in uh, Fishing the Little Pigeon, you do this thing where you go from like left justification to center, to right, to center, to left, that at first, like when I opened it, I was like, but why? Uh, and then when I read it, I'm like, oh, it's a stream, it's a river, right? And mm -hmm. you do other sections where you just have blocks of poetry like where does how the poem looks on the page come yeah. into the process and how important is that to the poem also i love this question um i think so i love this question because it's something i'm like actively working on like i'm trying to make better use of uh space on the page um, because I think when I first started writing as a young, as like a teenager, I just was like, I was just like beat poeting all over the place. I was like, lowercase, <laughs> lowercase, tab, 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 drop a whole page down. You know what I mean? I was all over the fucking map. So I thought like that's what poets who like smoked cigarettes and drank whiskey and whatever, that's what they did, you know? Uh, <laughs> come to find out, pub publishers disagree. <laughs> <laughs> But I think uh, I think when I started reading, um, that's the, that's the probably the biggest thing that really started to shape my curiosity about how stuff appeared on the page, and it became really important to me. Partly 
because I'm sort of a control freak and and I'm a nerd and I just get like really geeked out about like very specific choices that I started noticing writers were making in response to what a poem was saying, what it was trying to create, what feeling it was trying to build a remote. Um, so in in the conversation, I guess with regard to the book, the uh, the fishing a little pigeon piece, right, is, is very much sort of like, right, like a river. But a lot of that stuff often happens in the editing process for me, mm. right? Like I will write a thing and then if it's clear to me that this is worth pursuing or doing something with or getting some other eyes on, then I kind of will make the choice about, you know, where how I want it to live or like what actual container I want to gift it to people in so as to like reinforce the feeling that I get when I've read it. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes when I'll write, I'll just get like, I, you know, it'll, it'll be like, usually it's like one skinny little brick. Like most poems in here, or most poems I should say when I first write them are like the, my father is a mansion or they're like the year the Wu-Tang drops. They're like long and they're skinny and I'm not really thinking too much about it. I'm just thinking cool line breaks one at a time, like break that, break that, break that. Um, and then in the end, I will step back and say, you know, how does this look on the page? Does this make sense? What does it mean that there's not so much space here? Or what does it mean that there's all this white empty space? Or what kinds of stanza breaks are here? Um, and I credit the, the careful and thoughtful editing of um, some of the people I've just mentioned, but also with regard to the, the poem in particular you mentioned, Hanif Abdurraqib who is a dear friend and the editor of this book, um, Hanif was really adamant that these that this book needed to make more strategic use of uh, structure. Mm-hmm. Because I'm telling multiple stories that cut across like time and and space, right? So like some of them are about my dad, some of them are about whiteness and like white boydom trying to sort of marry that to sort of queerness and masculinity but like how are people going to keep all these conversations straight right and one of his like really brilliant scalpel i thought observations in the editing of this book was to try and create similar containers for similar poems so that folks could see like narratives evolving throughout collection um and, and the, the white boy poems or like the hip hop poems do that. Like one at a time, they start really skinny and constricted and restrained and like the Wu-Tang drops and then the blueprint drops. And by the time the chronic drops and then by the time the chronic drops again. And um, yeah, so in, in some ways, I think it was like a real thoughtful editing choice on the part of my editor. But that stuff is definitely um, important to me. Partly, partly, I think, too, from a musicality standpoint, right? Like words... My, my very first editing tool is to read it aloud. If it doesn't sound good read aloud, then it's like, then I'm doing something wrong. Mm. And if anything I can do in the structure of the poem to aid the musicality of the words or the musicality of the, the piece, then I'm, I'm going to try and do that. And sometimes it's helpful to have another editor come in and be like, this, this has a lot of music, but you're not letting it sing. Mm. You, you mentioned um, that you're a control freak. So then... Uh, do you do that formatting yourself, and um, and then after you put it up on the page, and somebody, the editor tells you, oh no, I'm sorry, it gets to the page, 
and given the dimensions of the page, they give it back to you and like, yeah, no, you couldn't do that. How was that going? All of the time. <laughs> totally. So, you know, the poem, the definition of privilege in here used to be one massive chunk. We fought over it. It was like, it was just like one big block brick of a run on sentence. And the press was like, this is not, what is, what is, this is not going to work. <laughs> they like sent it back to me and they just like moved the margins in. And then it was like three pages of a brick. And I was like, firm oh, no. no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take this back. Uh, they were like, well, math is real. You know what I mean? Like, we only have so many margins. This is the size of the text. So, like, rewrite the poem, get creative, work with me. <laughs> um, and what we ended up doing, I thought was like way, way cooler. Um, in some ways, I, I like the way it, it looks now. It looks, we, we broke it up into little, if I can find it, we broke them all up into small, sort of, uh, square chunks. Each of which, try, yeah, there it is, there it is, thank you. So each one, <laughs> each one is kind of carrying the sort of still boxed in spirit and energy of all of the other poems, but we did it in a way that was trying to suggest there is evolution. A lot of those hip hop poems and the white boy poems are trying to move from a space of like constriction to a space of some like self-realization or, 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 or you know, mm. treatment. And to the curious formatting nerds. Totally. <laughs> what did you what did you use to, to do that? Like what just Microsoft Word? Were you using uh, Adobe program of some sort? Or just... Yeah, that was the one poem actually, the definition of privilege, where like I was using Microsoft Word. They were using some other shit and they would send me back the Adobe like the the InDesign. <laughs> I'm like, this is not it. This is not what I gave you. <laughs> Uh, and and I felt bad about it, really, you know, going back and forth. But like, they were totally cool. And I think that's, it, you know, some friends of mine write all over the page. And I imagine, I know that a lot of that stuff gets sort of like lost in translation, right? And like the presses move much faster, or deadlines are tighter. Um, so I felt really grateful to be able to work with Hanif and Button and their design team to just be like, this isn't working. Can we try it again? Like, I'm here, you have my time, you have my attention. Just like, let's let's get it right, you know? Um, but we were definitely working in different systems and that was definitely a problem. <laughs> now, this is a good uh, transition to a question the rooster just asked, which was, uh, you mentioned Jean Verlee. Uh, do you look for beta readers to get eyes on your work first or take it to the stage? How does the stage play a role in your writing process now? Good question. Um, the stage was like the original editor for me, which is like a lot of, it's like, a, you know, you came up in the, the sort of like slam community or the performance community. I did, you know, I was a Brave New Voices kid. I was 19, 18 years old in Chicago. Um, I was a high school student. And then I went through college union poetry slams when I was an undergrad. And then I went into the adult scene. So like, and I, I think other, beside the obvious point, which is community, right? Those people are, including like Jean Ann and including Carlos, like these are people that are, you know, deeply important to me. I met them through the performance, right, space, but then also quickly they became the editors. So I don't, I don't know an answer to the question, right? Like I don't trust anybody's read of my work. Like I, I don't go 
it isn't the sharing, the physical sharing of a poem that makes me like feel excited to get it back. It is specifically who I am sharing it with and what that relationship is based on, you know? Um, I, I would, I will say that uh, my writing, I've had a hard time in the sort of pandemic times that we're living in, not having like open mic spaces to be able to try out and read room energy around new work. Mm-hmm. That's really important to me. It always has been. And I don't mean, maybe it's just cause I'm like a queer kid wandering around the world, trying to like be validated for every sneeze I ever make. You know what I mean? I just like <laughs> appreciation. That's I'm sure that's part of this. Hit. But the other, the other part is like, I'm, I want, there's something that happens in a room when you hear your own voice in a public space and you can sense other people's bodies and reactions and temperatures and chemistry. All of that is like the most important first editor for me, always. Um, sometimes now I will just go, if I know I got something, I will go right to one of the editors that I love and be like, Tina, look at this. I'll be like, John, read this or Angel, read this, you know? But more often than not, uh, I sometimes won't know that I have something solid until I read it in a space and people tell me that it's solid, which probably says a lot more about probably says a lot more about me than it does my my work. <laughs> but I know that in the like the Zoom room era that we're living in, that has become really hard for me. Not having a space to just like you know brand new first draft, no expectations. Let me throw it out there and see what comes back. That's it. You know, the um, I was going to ask a, a kind of a, a race question based on one of your on that first piece. Mm-hmm. And I think I know some of the answer there of this to this question, because you just mentioned that you were uh, with BNV in Chicago. So then you were on a Chicago team. Are you from Chicago? No, no. So I grew up in Michigan. Um, I was Michigan. I grew up in Ann Arbor. Yeah. OK, because you mentioned that you were told you were Steve Kerr. <laughs> and I'm wondering why. Why Steve Kerr? Why not Steve Nash? Uh, yeah, not Nowitzki. You know why? Why? Why Kerr? Totally. I mean, one, I'm probably older than I look, and Steve Kerr was like the white boy when I was a kid. <laughs> Steve Nash, right? Some, it's actually funny. Like sometimes when I'm in other rooms, I will substitute Steve Kerr for Steve Nash because like people under the age of 25 don't know who the fuck that is. They're like, oh, you mean the coach of the Golden State Warriors? I'm like, not exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who either of them are, so that's that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. No, yeah, I think that uh, basketball was really important to me. It was also a space, obviously, that was an extension of my hunt to distance myself from whiteness, right? Like basketball and hip-hop culture were things that I loved and was politicized by and felt really engaged in. Um, but they were also symptoms of a deep, deep, deep un- discomfort that I had with a kind of like access and privilege that I didn't really know what to do with that a lot of people in my life at the time did not have access to. At the time, you know, blackness is not the opposite of whiteness. Dismantling and destructuring whiteness and white privilege is. And I didn't have the language or the toolkit at the time to make that connection. So, um, anything I could get my hands on experientially, right, to appropriate 
so that I could convince myself I wasn't the white boy I feared I might be. Yeah. Felt like a useful self-distancing tool, only to to learn, of course, that that's not true. Um, and to have been really lucky in another regard to have had people show me to myself over the course of, you know, my like early 20s. I had a very a long team of kind and patient disruptors in my life to sort of tell me um, who I needed to be if I really gave a shit about like race and racial justice and questions of culture in America um, and what I needed to stop running from. And without fail, you know, those are non-white people in my life who have the directness, the fortitude, the kindness, the grace to do that. Um, so add that to the list of things that I have to be grateful for. But. Right. And, and I guess that's, you know, one of the, one of the um, criticisms or, uh, uh, I don't know, insult mm -hmm. uh, that comes uh, sometimes from people of another race, another, another culture, um, from white people, maybe mm -hmm. people of color, is that is when they confuse somebody, they confuse the skin tone, they confuse somebody that they'll say that two people look look. Oh, you look, you know, Eddie Vega, you look just like Chibi, and I'm like, uh, no, you know, just because we're both Mexican American doesn't mean that we look the same, right? Um, and mm -hmm. when I, you know, that's why I asked about the intentionality of a Steve Kerr. He's red. He's redhead. You know, right. uh, were were you making some? like no statement about that too, that mm. not all whiteness is the same. Mm. Um, that's not a statement that I was making in that <laughs> piece. But I, you know, listen, we, we treat and talk about whiteness as a monolith. I think that like mm. the time that I was writing that piece and thinking about that, I was mostly committed to my reflection on my desire to be down in whatever way I felt like I needed to be so that I could excuse myself from the like inescapable legacy of slavery teetering on my back that I hope I could just like sidestep and not have to say the reparations word, right? Um, I think now, particularly in light of this election that we're thumbing through votes around right now, right? Like we talk a lot about We never talk about the white voter. Uh, you know, we, we, we talk a lot about the Latinx vote. We talk a lot about the black vote. Like that's a fucking thing, right? Like that none of these identities are monoliths. And yet we sure know that like the kinds of people that are showing up to vote who have skin that look like mine are also not a monolith, but we, we, we don't treat the same we don't pick up the same sort of interrogative lens to talk about white people showing up to vote. And that's just the thing that's like coming to me now, Eddie, when I'm, when I'm listening to that, I think a lot about. And yeah. a question and comment today's all things considered had like a little segment about the white voter. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, so if you want to go back through, go back through and listen to that. God bless NPR. The NPR. There's a little segment. It's kind of said what you said. Basically, it's the reason why we don't say anything is because the white voter is always there. Right. You know, yeah. Right. White voter is always there. It is the great monolith. You know, same. And, and in some ways, like kindred to the question of the one that's at the center of that poem, which is like, I get to choose both the kid in that poem and continually in my daily life. 
I choose the extent to which I am aware of my skin when I leave my home. And um, that direct through line, right, is like, is quite literally it. It is, it is the definition. And the more I think that like we can do to be able to push people to carry a kind of mindfulness about that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think you're, you're entirely right with their, their, it, they talk about communities as they are monoliths, but uh, you know, like as we saw in this election and many others, like no one race, no one skin tone all just moves together because we're all Latino, right? So we're all together. And I think the nuances are so important. Um, I wanna dive into your your political activism uh, because in doing research for this interview, I'm scouring your Instagram. Instagram. I was like, oh, he's out there. Um, <laughs> but before we get to that, I, I really want to get to this question uh, because it was the first question that came from our audience um, at the top of the show. Lena C asked, general question, what are the best ways to make a good piece into a great piece? Hmm. In your humble opinion, of course. I will say in my own experience, if I feel like I've got something, if I, if I feel like I have some heat, I know the first step is sharing it with someone who is going to be critical of it or is going to like tell me the truth. You know? It's your community, right? It's your, your bubble, your people. Yeah. Great yeah. answer. <laughs> so then let's dive into this politicalness of, of yours. You've been out there. You've been... Uh, uh, heavily involved in this election, like how how is how is the political activism part of your life balancing with your 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 writer self, or like just how does that influence you? Yeah, I think you know I um, my work is really around um, what does that even mean? I, honestly, they're they're the same thing. They're the same mm-hmm. thing. How I show up. And the work that I do, um, whatever we choose to call it, you know, like mobilizing or organizing or teaching or educating or facilitating is all the same version of trying to help people access conversations that otherwise like don't have access to, don't have knowledge around or are too scared to engage in. Mm. And a lot of my sort of, work for the last decade, I would say, um, is really using, like I mentioned, tools of creativity and play to sort of um, disarm and delight and offer people who traditionally may not think they have an interest or a stake in conversations about sociocultural issues and politics um, permission to engage in that discourse, right? This is a, a difficult conversation or a thing, I guess, to reflect on in light of like the numbers we're seeing right now. But so much of my like energy is dedicated to moving threes to fives, you know, uh, on some random 10 point scale, right? I'm specifically talking about white people who are not completely asleep at the wheel but they're certainly not out here like talking about reparations. Um, my job in many ways, I, as I define it, 
is to try and meet those folks where they're at and to do whatever I can to feel safe and um, available to meet those folks where they're at, but to, to make sure they know they cannot stay there. And how do I move them gently, firmly towards thinking with greater criticality about who they are and how they show up and what kinds of choices they make in their lives, their work, their communities, and their families. Um, so in some ways, you know, it's, it's much more work of like strategy. And um, I call my teaching philosophy or, or how I think about education as like Trojan horse pedagogies. <laughs> it's like, well, I will, I will. And partly this is because I think this is how people learn. I think we learn when we're tricked into it, or we don't think we're learning. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that we learn through play and, and we learn through giving ourselves permission to fail. And, um, you know, maybe on the heels of the conversation about whiteness and what the work of white people that are trying to think carefully about their role right now, I internalize that to mean having real focused conversations with white people uh, about the world and doing whatever it is that I can in order to be that person, you know? Like I'm aware that there's a kind of like currency and citizenship I have in white spaces that allows me to say the thing that a lot of other people can't to white people. So I try and create spaces, whether it's like a corporate boardroom, a summer camp, or a university faculty lounge, try to create spaces where people are um, given permission to say the things that scare them about their identities and to you know, convince them that they, they need to move and to give them some tools and strategies to, to really do better faster. Yeah. Well, as as someone who is deeply aligned with the idea that we can turn Texas blue one of these days, I commend you for your work uh, in that and um, continuing to to do what is necessary to move the mark. Because I think how you said at the beginning of that answer was like your artistic life and your, your political activism life they're intertwined, right? You know, like it's, you can't have one without the other, and they they work uh, so closely together. So thank you for all the work that you've done. Um, and for spending this hour with us in a really contentious night on election week. Honestly, this has been the most like refreshing possible thing I could have done. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, I went for a run right before this. I, so my hair's all fucked up. I'm like, I'm like God damn, what did I do? Um, I just was like, I, there's CNN is right here. Turned it off. Uh, haven't even thought about dinner. I'm, I'm reminded TV and Eddie, just like how much levity is possible in spaces where I like give myself permission to step into well curated rooms, you know, like, and, uh, and, and increasingly I'm, I'm just trust the power of well curated rooms and appreciate the invitation to show up and be here with y'all. And yeah, the word about our, our curation then. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here. If you would please do us the honor of closing yeah. us out with one more poem, uh, we would really, really appreciate it. All right. Um, how about how about something brand new? 
New shit. Oh, uh, I'm going to look it up. So uh, I am a, I like to think of myself as a nature creature. I'm a child of the wild. Um, and I was on book tour when the pandemic settled in. Um, you know, when it went from like the rolling blackouts that Thursday to Sunday when we were like, oh, this is, we're pretty good. We'll just wait it out. And then like Delta Airlines started canceling shit. And we were like, okay, I'm just going to stand very stale and not move for two and a half months. <laughs> um, I was on book tour when that happened. And I happened to be near enough to Michigan, which is where my family lives, uh, to check in on my seven-year-old parents and um i thought it would be a two-week stint it ended up being two months and um one of the things that i was lucky enough to be able to do was just like go for walks in the morning and uh have a a, a nature muscle built back up which living in the city of new york sometimes atrophies um or at least the one that allows me to appreciate it and on a night where we're all uh stressed out and thinking about the future, um, it felt good to close this set and close this beautiful space with a poem that is a prayer for a red-tailed hawk. All right, prayer for red-tailed hawk. Quite appropriate, actually, now looking at it. Today, a sour gloom that caffeine cannot soothe. No news of the sick world is good. No silver line dance lighting the way. No patter of rain to tame the guilt. Oh, cloudless morning, you radiant mockery. Oh, pine spire needling into the heavens. Oh, heaven of a thousand red feathered blades. You weightless bandit, you bandit. You circling call and waltz of welcome. Please help us. Please send humor. Please unpucker this tart, hurt, heart, split across eight states and six feet and 12 screens. Oh, boil of flippant beauty. Please beckon the earth bound and lame. Our hands are clean and hand sanitized, cracked. We are soggy and scrolling and scrolling for light today of all days. So please think of us mortal, and helpless as you cut and climb and call out beautiful bright news of a new land ahead. Adam Faulkner, y'all. <laughs> uh, that was that was a brilliant way to close out that. Amazing, amazing. Yeah, yeah. I love that. That was cool. <laughs> thank you so much for being here with us tonight thank you so much for everything that you've done uh the book is amazing um for anybody that has not uh does not have it go buy it it's on buttonpoetry.com slash product slash the dash willies uh you can follow oh, adam on the great cover 
<laughs> it's a beautiful book cover too. Uh, you can follow Adam on Instagram, Adam underscore Faulkner. Um, I don't know if you're anywhere else in the world. I don't understand Twitter, so I don't go there. <laughs> but yeah, thank you for being here all the way from New York City. Um, we appreciate you, your time, your words, and your work. So Pleasure was all mine, for real. I really appreciate you both. Thank you all for being here. Yeah, that was Adam Faulkner, everybody. And what a fantastic conversation an hour that was. Yes, go get that book. Everybody's going to get that book. Despite everything that's going on in this world, we're just so happy to be able to still have these spaces to bring artists and poets together and to continue these conversations because the work is still important, y'all. Um, that being said, who do we have coming on next week, Eddie? Oh, we've got an amazing poet all the way from... New Orleans, Louisiana. New Orleans. We have a, a poet who um, is has one of my favorite poems uh, ever in slam. Probably like my first favorite slam poem that I saw live at a at a competition uh, icon. The poem is Trigger Warning, so go look that one up, please. Mm. One of my favorite poems. Um, so anyhow, we're gonna not have, not only is she a phenomenal slam poet, but she's a phenomenal person period yeah. Yeah. uh so we're excited to have that huh multi-talented all over uh not just in you know doing poetry i saw her i saw her in a music video just recently actually stacks on stacks on stacks all of the things so that's coming up next week everybody thank you so much for tuning in please make sure you know what i realized today i did not do my job as producer Boom, banners. Uh, <laughs> if you want more information about the things that we are uh, doing with Words and Shit, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Words and uh, That's on Instagram and Twitter, so you can find out about all the upcoming shows that we have as well as the previous ones. We're also available via podcast, so go up and listen to previous episodes uh, because we've been doing this via wherever you get your podcast we've been doing this since april y'all so there's almost 30 episodes of words and shit that you can go listen to on your podcast and of course follow write art out on instagram and facebook to find out about all the initiatives that they are putting in place in terms of open mics and writing workshops but uh thank you again for being here until next time that was eddie vega and that was chiberdonia stay safe y'all good night everybody